Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on stolen land. We broadcast on the unceded lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation who have cared for this land since time immemorial. I pay respects to elders past and present. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. One in five Australians have a disability and disability presents itself in many different ways. Disabled people are still underrepresented in media and literature. Growing Up Disabled in Australia is a brand new anthology from those negotiating lived experiences of disability, chronic illness and terminal illness. It's the fifth book in the Growing Up series from Black Ink and it's edited by Carly Finlay. And with over 40 contributors to the series, the collection covers a wide array array of writing and to speak about their contributions we have Jess Walton. Um, Jess uh, thank you so much for joining me um, to, to kind of I suppose kick off the conversation growing up disabled in Australia uh, is based on uh, the social model of disability that's what it outlines that's what Carly outlines at the start of the book that uh, people with disability Australia describes as the social model seeing disability uh, as the result of the interaction between people living with impairments and an environment filled with physical, attitudinal and communication and social barriers. I'd just love to start by getting your thoughts on that and, and seeing if that model, how that model sits with you and your way of thinking. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the, the social model of disability really changed the way that I felt about being a disabled person. Um, and um, yeah, I remember listening to an interview on a podcast um, with Jack's Jackie Brown, who is a Melbourne disabled um, activist, and Jack was talking about the social model. And I had had a, an impairment since I was um, nine and had been diagnosed with cancer and had my leg amputated. And I'd been a part of a non-disabled family and didn't really have any disabled peers or friends um, or teachers or role models. Um, and hearing, growing up without that representation, that feeling of being a part of the disabled community, um, I didn't really know what um, what it meant to be disabled. I didn't really feel like I was part of that community. And and the, even the word disabled, I didn't understand that that was a pride word, a community word, a, a word with a whole history of disability rights attached to it. Um, and so hearing Jack talk about the social model of disability and how um, there's actually nothing wrong with being disabled. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Um, that you can be have disability pride, and that you can be part of this amazing community, um, and fight the ableism and the barriers that we encounter in society, rather than um, thinking of ourselves as wrong. That really blew my mind, and it it was from that moment on that I started to identify as disabled and to reach out to other disabled people and and really feel like part of that community. Mm. 
Um, Jess, yeah, I think it's um, it's really interesting what you're saying. I think it it really is a common thread throughout this anthology that um, it's often when you see yourself reflected back, whether that is finding community online or in other people, that I suppose the kind of growing up uh, part of it started to become uh, a little bit uh, easier and, and just, I suppose, seeing yourself in, in other people. Um, I suppose, can you speak a little bit about that idea of, of community and perhaps what this anthology and being a part of it has kind of meant to you in your writing? Well, being asked to be... Um, uh, be uh, sorry, I applied for um, the Writability Fellowship at Writers Victoria and that was the first time that I really wrote poetry. Um, I didn't really feel like I was a poet. I'd, I'd written a picture book um, but I, I wanted to try other forms of writing, and it was through that fellowship that I was able to explore writing poetry about um, my physical disability and my mental illness, and um, and that was really freeing. There's something about poetry that's just um, where I'm able to express things I couldn't say in other kinds of writing. Mm. Um, and then I've been able to do the next fellowship, the Publishability Fellowship, where I've written a whole poetry manuscript, and it was around that time um, that I centrepiece in um, for growing up disabled in Australia and I was really nervous about sending it in because at that point I was still just kind of feeling my way through poetry and learning how to write it and I was quite nervous about sending um, sending my work in particularly because I knew that there were some amazing writers um, who were you know hoping to be in that that um, anthology as well and so I didn't really feel like my poem was good enough but um, I think I often feel that way about my work um, partly because I guess we don't see a lot of disabled poets um, but you know I didn't have many um, role models within the publishing industry to kind of look up to and and to model myself on and so writing about disability can be a bit hard um, because you know I guess uh, sometimes when I'm writing about my disability, I'm like, is someone really going to find this interesting? Am I really describing this the right way? Even though I'm an expert on my own body and mind, um, I still have that kind of imposter syndrome about my own writing. And um, and then to have it accepted into the anthology was amazing. I, I didn't expect it to be accepted, and it was just a really exciting moment when I found out it was going to be a part of the book. I've always loved this series. I love all the other books in the series, so... I'm really honoured to be a part of that series and also to be in a book with so many other disabled writers that I love and respect. Um, And, you know, Andy Jackson's poetry has been amazing and he was my mentor um, while I was doing my Publishability Fellowship last year. Um, So to to have my poetry alongside his is, um, is a real professional thrill. Mm, that's so special yeah. and I, I think uh, what you're saying about um, that kind of imposter syndrome is you know it's unfortunately it's, so, it's such a, a common feeling I think amongst many writers um, but yeah it, you know your piece uh, I'm just looking at it now uh, curve uh, in the you know kind of closes out the anthology can you speak a little bit about um, the you know the poem that you have contributed yeah uh, so it's about um, basically um uh, anti-fatness in the the medical community, um, and because I am disabled and fat, I've you know been that way for quite a while. After recovering from cancer, I put on a lot of weight, um, and felt really good and healthy after having cancer. You know that was a really good time for my body, I suppose. But fatness is not really seen in a healthy, is seen as healthy or positive by the medical profession or society at large. Um, but I found um, that. 
um, my prosthetist at the time really didn't want to make me a, a running leg um, because he felt that I needed to lose weight and that was an ongoing theme throughout my childhood and an ongoing struggle for me and I just couldn't lose weight and, and it was really disappointing I guess to be focused on weight loss as a kid um, instead of just enjoying running which you know would have meant that I was you know out there doing something that I'd been doing before I lost my legs so I did little acts I did a whole lot of um, dancing and sport and it felt like all of that just stopped because I didn't have the right kind of support or knowledge or um, medical equipment or mobility aids to do what I loved. I didn't see people dancing in wheelchairs. I didn't know you could do that. I didn't see people dancing on crutches and I didn't know you could do that. Um, I didn't, you know, I could see that I, I was able to see the Paralympics and so I knew that you could run on a running leg, but I was prevented from being able to have one as a kid. So everything just kind of stopped. Um, and I found other things that I was passionate about, but as an adult, I guess I got really angry about that denial of my love of running and um, and that attitude about fat bodies and what they can and can't do. And thankfully, I found a prosthetist as an adult who was like, yeah, you can run. There's no reason you can't run. Let's make you a running leg. And I went out into the car park of the hospital and learned to run. It was the most amazing feeling. So I don't run anymore, but I have done a 5k marathon and uh, sorry a 5k run as part of the Melbourne Marathon and that was a real um, a really amazing moment for me um, and I've got to feel the wind on my face again um, and that was yeah a real gift um, and it, it should have been possible right from the beginning mm. yeah it really it feels like it goes back to that kind of age-old saying you can't be what you can't see and I think that's something so powerful about this anthology and also this whole growing up series is uh, you know particularly this one is is being able to see the kind of multitude of ways that people live with uh with disabilities with illness uh, it, it just feels very powerful to kind of see all of the different shades and light of um of, of living in, in in different ways yeah and I mean now I don't run but I can you know get in my wheelchair my power chair with my kids on my lap and race across the park to the playground across the road and you know you find different ways to do the things you love so but you know being able to talk to a medical professional and say this is what I want to do and feel empowered to tell them what you want and then say how can you help me to achieve that is really um, something that I guess I want young disabled people reading that anthology that's the message I want them to take is that the medical professional is not always the expert. You are also an expert on your own body and what you can and can't do and what you want to try. Um, and there's no reason that they can't help you to do that. Mm. Yeah, that definitely feels like a thread throughout many of these uh, con contributions to this that you know, the power of autonomy of your own body. And as you said, being, you know, everybody is the, their expert in their own body and being able to, yeah. I suppose, sit in that power, particularly when you are uh, facing up to uh, the health or, or medical system that can sometimes, I think, perhaps feel quite intimidating. Um, Jess, I'd love to um, know, you know, there's so many incredible pieces throughout this anthology, you know, ranging from all different types of writing. You know, there's some pieces that you've read in here that I suppose change your thinking about disability or, or writing. Um, I think that Andy's poem is really uh, just just being able to see another poet writing about disability. And, um, and as I said, I, I haven't seen many disabled poets and it's sometimes difficult to write poetry about disability and about the body and mind when you haven't kind of got those examples. So 
So Andy's poetry has been really important to me, both in his other collections and, and this poem in the collection, um, because it just sort of is, you know, helps me to think about what what I would like to write about with my body and, and to think about the kind of the crit way of seeing things and seeing um, the crit way of writing. You know, we have a particular view on the world. We have a particular, you know, we're a multitude. We're very diverse. But there is something special about the way that disabled people see the world um, and the way that we write about the world and about ourselves. So, um, and I also really loved uh, reading Carly's writing because obviously, um, you know, she's done a lot of work um, in the disability community um, and teaching people about ableism. And um, I loved her book, Say Hello. And so then to be able to get to read kind of the next step, um, her next writing, her next work was really um, fantastic. Mm. It was really great. Um, a huge fan of Carly's. Uh, as am I, and she's no stranger to this program as well. Um, yeah, always putting out incredible work. Um, I suppose you kind of touched on this, but Jess, I'd love to know, um, you know, for any young people or emerging writers um, that live with disability, do you have any advice, um, I suppose, for people that are kind of wanting to enter the industry? Um, well, I, I would recommend having a look at the Writability and Publishability Fellowship if you're in Victoria, um, because that program has both of those fellowships have been life-changing and career-changing for me. Um, but also if publishing, um, if you go to mainstream publishers and they're not willing to publish your work or they, you know, try to say that there's no audience for disabled writing, um, you know, don't be afraid to do things a bit differently. You know, I did my first picture book as a Kickstarter um, and I think that, you know, there's real value in looking at ways of self-publishing and getting our voices out there um, or find small publishers who are more on board with, you know, trying new things and approaching new audiences. Um, look at who is already publishing disabled writers and, um, and go for those publishers because they've already done the work, they've already shown that they're listening to our community and platforming our voices. So, um, and also, I guess, looking at, um, at blogging, you know, Carly had a for a very long time and kind of honed her writing skills that way and got her voice out there and built a platform. Um, you know, um, social media can be a great place to practice writing, even if it is only in small snippets in tweets or Facebook posts, and it can be a great way to um, build an audience for your work that, that you can then go to publishers as well and say, look, I already have this audience, this platform. Um, so, yeah, that's probably the advice I can think of off the top of my head now, but... Um, Mostly the advice is just to write and don't listen to people who say you've got to write every day or you've got to write a certain amount or push yourself. Um, just write what you can, when you can. You know, your disability or your illness might mean that you can't write very often or very much. You might have kids, you might have a full-time job or two jobs. You know, just do what you can when you can and just build a body of work slowly and get it out there. I love that. I think that's amazing advice, right? What you can, when you can. Uh, Jessica Walton, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I really appreciate uh, you talking to me about your contribution. No worries. Thank you for having me on. Uh, that was Jessica Walton there, uh, who is a white, queer, disabled writer and teacher living on Bunwurrung land with her wife and two children. Uh, she is one of the many contributors to this wonderful Growing Up Disabled in Australia anthology. It is out now through Black Ink. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. 
To eat is to build upon our collective story. We use food to say again and again who we are. Eating with my mouth open is a personal and cultural exploration of food, memory and hunger. It is the first book by local writer Sam Van Sweden uh, and she joins me now to talk all about it. Sam, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, It is such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed reading your work. Um, Would you be up for starting with a reading? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'm going to read from Chapter 10 of the book. There is aspiration in eating. Consumption and nourishment are so full of possibility. This is such an easy story to find, hidden barely under the surface of the stories I, and probably you, grew up with. I start spotting the moments where food speaks and it's almost impossible to stop. Oliver Twist approaches his master with his bowl raised into the air. Please, sir, I want some more. Oliver has been nominated by the other boys and he asks for more because they want him to. It's a dare, a challenge. He isn't shy. He doesn't demure. I want some more. But he's also not really asking for the food. Mary Poppins' spoonful of sugar is a metaphor for making horrible tasks more enjoyable through play. If the spoon had been full of actual sugar, I suspect suspect Michael and Jane would have felt comforted and motivated all the same. When Jo March pulls a luxurious pear from her new letterbox, a tiny house that's been filled with food, perhaps the ultimate comfort, we love Laurie too. Even when Beth is dying, it's food that brings the warmth and softness. You drink up all that good broth, Jo says to her, spurning soup into her sister's mouth with all the care and tenderness in the world. She feeds Beth as if it can help stave off death, who blows in through the window in just a second, as if all the good broth in the world could help at all. Maria, in The Sound of Music, lists her favourite things, which include crisp apple strudel and schnitzel with noodles. It's not even the specific tastes. The memory of those things is enough. Maria's heart is breaking, her faith wavers, but she can always remember her favourite things. These redemptive food stories are everywhere. Elizabeth Gilbert carb-loading her way back into her body and her life. Lady and the Tramp chewing and slurping their shared spaghetti, culminating in that iconic kiss. Julie Powell following Julia Child's footsteps, using attempted mastery of gourmet French cookery as a shield against all the uncontrollable things life keeps serving up. Despite all the period costumes, dubbed voices and orchestral accompaniment, as well as the fact that some of these characters aren't even human, these films are so familiar to me and I love them for that. I relate to them. They reflect the things I hope food will live up to and sometimes it fulfills those hopes. This is what I'm reaching for when I turn to food for comfort. Mm -hmm. In these films and in many others, food stands in as a shining beacon of wellness, happiness, togetherness, or at the very least as a comfort against great hurt. Everywhere I look, someone tells me that food is an answer to almost everything. Heartbreak, celebration, difficulty communicating. Food is presented as a saviour, the ultimate contentment and solace. So many stories exist about what food means that it's impossible not to attach narratives to what we're eating. Celebration food, conference food, workplace baking, family meal, eating alone, delivery food, comfort food or my sympathies based into a, baked into a casserole stored in the freezer for when grief is overwhelming. The weight of these stories, of all these different ways of eating, means that of course we expect to feel a particular way around food and then reward or punish ourselves based on whether we're living up to these stories. These are the standards my disappointment is measured against when food fails to meet my expectations. These are the stories I wish I could anchor myself in when food becomes something to worry over. Food speaks. And in tones, low, 
calm, it'll be okay. Mm. Such relatable writing. Uh, Sam Van Sweden there reading from her book, Eating With My Mouth Open. Thank you so much um, for that reading. Sam, this is your uh, your first book. Can you tell me a a little bit about your your writing journey to to this book? Sure. Um, My... This book took six years to write, um, and I think I, I've been writing about food and bodies for a long time before that. Um, and I did a lot of living into the writing as well, so it's it's been, I hate the word journey, but it's been a journey. <laughs> um, I, I've always written poetry, um, I've always written essays, found nonfiction as the thing that really spoke to me as the true thing that I needed to write beyond being factual. I mean, the thing that I really felt in my body was, you know, the form I needed to be working in. Um, so, yeah, I've been, I've been playing with essays for a while and I'm really excited about the experimental possibilities of what the essay form can do. Mm, absolutely. And, yeah, I would love to talk a little bit about your style. I, I suppose uh, just to begin with, you know, you open the book kind of commenting on two uh, major factors um, that have played a role in your relationship with food uh, and bodies, I suppose, being your parents, your dad being a chef for 25 years and your mum being um, morbidly obese. Um, I suppose, when did you realise the impact that your parents had or were having on your relationship to food and, and also writing? I think I had an inkling of it before I started this book. So the book started as a, um, an honours project at RMIT in 2014. Um, and the question that I came to that project with was how I could create for the page something that could represent the way that memory acts around food, which is a really specific sort of movement. Your brain does something and your body does something really interesting. Uh, and while I was writing that, my family, of course, kept coming up again and again. Uh, and my supervisor at the time kept saying to me yeah but what's it what's it really about like I was writing these sort of vignettes short vignettes about food memories and what I ended up with was sort of a a memory menu Um, but then the story was really about my family and one day I, I sort of said to him, well, you know, here's the thing. My, my dad was a chef for 25 years and, and my mum's been dieting forever. And we sort of blinked at each other and went, oh, okay, well, that's, I guess that's what it's about. Um, but then as, as I kept writing, I realised that it was about me too and my own uh, experiences of difficult embodiment and difficult food. Yeah, it really is amazing how much we, I suppose, pick up those, whether they're uh, spoken about or not, those cues from from when we grow up and the the ways that we do think about about food. And you know, somewhere in the book, you write about the even deciding what foods we cherish or what foods comfort us, and how we kind of learn those things from such a young age. Um, yeah, it definitely gave me a lot to to think about and reflect on in my own uh, kind of eating journey. Um, you know, I'd love to talk about your style of writing. You know, you really effortlessly thread your personal experience within, I suppose, broader pop culture and, and, and cultural criticism. Has that always been your, your way of writing? And you are kind of talking about it then, kind of going from vignettes to, to creating something longer. Can you talk to me a little bit about that style and the way that you write? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's sort of a there's a commercial imperative to make it about more than just yourself, um, mm. of course, from a really practical standpoint, but also that's the writing that I enjoy reading, um, is the really sort of internal, external, 
that spiralling sort of movement between the two. So getting really deep on a writer's own experience and then pivoting to put that in a context, you know, within a frame is really interesting to me. So I, I guess I was sort of writing what I enjoy reading. Um, but also that there's... Um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. Yep. <laughs> That's right. You're saying writing that you enjoy reading is the writing that you're doing. Yes. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I suppose just on that, you, on your Twitter a little while ago, you put a photo of um, books around food and bodies that I suppose have informed some of your thinking in these areas. I'm, I'm wondering if you can kind of speak to some of those works and the role that they've played in your in your writing. For sure. Um, there's one uh, writer that really, I feel, got what I was doing and her book was actually published after I'd done the thing, <laughs> it, it, when I read it, I went, oh, God, yes, you get it. And that was Ruby Tando, who um, is a UK um, food writer, and she's ex-British um, Bake Off. She wrote a book called Eat Up that's all about, uh, I guess, embodying appetites and not being afraid of what your body wants, um, giving yourself permission to eat in a way that satisfies not just... Um, physical hunger but also emotional hungers and I I feel like that book really got me and it's one that I return to all the time um, for little bits of comfort and I think she's following after in a large way MFK Fisher uh, who was uh, a wartime food writer she was American she moved to um, France and she writes absolutely magnificently about the power of um, of cooking and the ways that food is used as a metaphor, not just for um, not just for love, but also for security, and the ways that hungers are not just physical hungers, but but emotional ones as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I, yeah, you've given me so much to think about about that. Even your reading at the start, where you say food is an answer to everything, and it's definitely something that you you know explore throughout the whole book as uh, you know food as a means of celebration, as a means of coming together for you know, big occasions like uh, how we, you know, what did you say, your, um, how we bake sympathy into a, into a casserole mm. and, um, you know, even talking about Christmas and the, the memories that we have around that and the food that's there. And you just really write so vividly about how food evokes memory but also how we kind of remember our lives through the food that we eat. Um, you know, it, it really kind of punctuates those ideas of coming together um, and also and being with ourselves, I'm, I'm interested if, I suppose, in writing this book, if, if your relationship with food has, has changed at all. I think my relationship with food is always changing. It was definitely more difficult before writing the book. Writing the book led me to seek out some help for my own disordered eating um, and that process both fed the book and um, fed my relationship with food so that's definitely shifted but also I think everybody's relationship with food is is largely um I mean it's not static it's it's seasonal I, there was periods where you know my my dad stocked up my freezer while I was writing because I just couldn't face the kitchen um which is kind of uh, an ironic you know I'm just doing some food writing but I just can't do the cooking um so yeah, it's 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 always shifting, uh, but I think I've definitely got a, a new appreciation for being aware of how it's shifting and creating some understanding as to why it's shifting. Mm. 
Yeah, I feel like even in the book there are moments where you talk about the, I suppose, changing nature of relationship with food and, you know, I think you compare it to like seasonal fruits and how, you know, your relationship changes to food depending on obviously what is available, what is in season, but also, uh, you know, for a multitude of other reasons, how we're feeling, um, how we're feeling about our bodies, how we're feeling emotionally. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's given me so much to think about. Uh, something that I think you do really well and it's really interesting is kind of weaving the role that um, social media, in particular Instagram, um, plays in the ways that we think about food and wellness and bodies. And, you know, you kind of write about finding a community through people online, through seeing fat bodies reflected back to you. Um, and also, I suppose, learning about that third wave of fat fat activism how instrumental do you see I suppose social media being in in your journey towards sorry I keep using the word journey you're you know like you're (laughs) negotiating self-acceptance and and you know feelings about your own your own body absolutely central uh Lindy West has um this idea that she brings up in Shrill about how her own body acceptance involved only one step, and that was looking at fat bodies on the internet until she didn't feel uncomfortable anymore. Mm. And um, that, that's definitely reflective of my own experience too. I think there's a massive body positivity community on Instagram, and that's, that's amazing. Uh, as body t- positivity becomes more mainstream, we're also now sort of reaching this point where body positivity has an aesthetic. So we're also um, using it as a gateway for other maybe more radical ideas around fat liberation and body acceptance or neutrality, which shifts um, shifts it from being a positive experience to being a maybe neutral or, or you know, more mindful experience. And also... Um, things around fat liberation, around how all bodies deserve respect regardless of their size, um, can can be quite a radical shift. Um, and Instagram, for sure, has been at the centre of that for me. Mm. Yeah, I, I can um, relate to that myself as well. Uh, if you have just joined us, we are chatting with Sam Van Sweden all about uh, her book, Eating With My Mouth Open. It is out now through New South. Um, Sam... I'd love to, I suppose, talk a little bit about, you know, threaded throughout this book is is there really moments where you kind of have your body narrated back to you, um, like so many people do, like particularly young women and often from a young age, um, and how our bodies are commented commented on, whether it's overtly or uh, or not overtly, um, you know, whether it's kind of from what clothes are available to us or, um, you know, commenting on how we what food we put on our plate. Um, I suppose, how much do you think our ideas around our bodies are shaped by how others speak to us about ourselves? Hugely. <laughs> if you look at young children, they don't have the hang-ups around their bodies that we do. Like, have you ever watched a baby play with its feet? <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. <laughs> and it's so, it's just so joyous. And watching kids eat and just, embody themselves is is really lovely because they don't have all of those extra layers of stuff um, whereas we do over time we we build up those extra layers of stuff whether that's through um, you know watching news media uh, watching even at the moment like the diet ads at this time of year are absolutely off tap um, and those those stories really do build up and impact the ways that we live within our bodies so it's definitely yeah 
it definitely feeds into the way we feel about ourselves. The positive thing is that body image is taught, which means it can also be untaught. Um, so that makes me feel hopeful. Mm, yeah, absolutely. It really does make me reflect on how much shame we learn from uh, how other people speak about uh, ourselves, which is, yeah, there's a lot of work to do there. But, um, you know, something else that I, I, I think I was really thinking on um, with your book is how um, how we can kind of forget our bodies and, and then remember them and how we kind of come back to them and finding ways that we can actually sit in ourselves and be aware of ourselves and then kind of this kind of forgetting and remembering um, and, you know, you kind of punctuate it through the ways in which we remember. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit? Mm, I think that's part of what we are taught about being in our bodies is that it's a constant project. I mean, especially for women, our bodies are, are weaponized against ourselves and we're taught that the project is to forget your body, right? Like mm. it's to disconnect your appetites and your needs from what your body is doing so that you can shrink it and make it as small as possible. Um, and the process of coming home is really about having a responsive relationship to your body, approaching it with a sort of basic kindness and listening to your body in the same way that you would listen to a friend that you love. Um, and that can be really challenging. It, sound, it sounds pretty woo-woo. Uh, and it's a pretty pretty sort of radical thing to do, to disconnect from diet culture and, and insist on listening to what your body has to say. But it's it's essential and it's, it's really hard work. Mm. Yeah, it, def it, it is. It is hard work. And it reminds me of um, one of the points in the books where you say something like uh, it's radical for a fat person to just love their body. Um, and yeah, it's just, it, it makes me feel so, oh, it, it's such a shame that that is so simple, but it, it is still seen as, yeah, it's still considered radical for fat people to feel okay in their body. Um, but yeah, it's so, it's so sad and just a huge comment on the way that we, um, we speak about bodies and which bodies are, are valuable and which bodies are, are not valuable and which bodies are okay and what's the standard. Um, yeah, et cetera. Um, Sam, I'd love to, I suppose, touch on your um I went to your virtual book launch um a couple of nights ago and I'd love to just uh, say something that your um your publisher Harriet from New South said um is that um you're not only a writer but a community builder um and I just really loved that as a as a way of thinking um and, and being in the writing community and it was really wonderful to attend that book launch you know you had um writings from Fiona Wright, Eloise Grills um just to name a few can you talk to me a little bit about what it's been like to actually launch this book into the world and celebrate it with the with the writing and reading community it's been so lovely I think especially after the year that was or you know was not 2020 um it's been so heartening um I was really lucky to be able to have an in-person launch event as well and I think that it was the first event that a lot of people were able to come back to after lockdown and it was just so lovely to see all the faces and you know to hold people um and to be to be in the same room it, it's just so lovely um, but also launch, launching the book has been a beautiful process of finally being able to thank so many people that have um, been instrumental in helping me realise that there was a story here uh, and helping me realise that speaking my story would potentially help other people own their own stories um, and I'm just I'm so grateful 
to, I mean, Melbourne's lit community is amazing and super generous and um, I think everybody is really conscious of passing down the help that they've received themselves and um, I've definitely benefited from that. Mm, yeah, I can definitely relate to that as well. Um, and let's just have a moment for the amazing food theme that you had with your launch as well. I did see some cupcakes <laughs> going around the internet. That was very cool. I like that a lot. And I've also seen that people are um, getting your book and taking photos with their favorite snack, which I would encourage anyone listening to do because that's great. I love that. It feels so fitting. I love it too. <laughs> um, Sam, it's been such a pleasure uh, to read your work and, and talk to you this afternoon. Thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. Uh, we were just chatting there with Sam Van Sweden, who has just released Eating With My Mouth Open. It is out now through New South. I want to say a big thank you to my guests uh, who joined me this afternoon, uh, Jess Walton, for joining me to speak all about her contribution, her beautiful poem uh, in Growing Up Disabled in Australia. That one is the new anthology through Black Ink. It is part of the Growing Up series. I think they're at their fifth book by now. Um, some really incredible writing in there edited by none other than Carly Finlay. I uh, also want to say a big thank you to Sam Van Sweden for joining me to talk about her book, Eating With My Mouth Open. Uh, if that interview brought up anything um, for you, please know that you can always call Lifeline for free on 13 11 14 um, and also the Butterfly Foundation on 131450. My name is Beth AQ. Enjoy the sun. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at Bethany AQ or the Triple R website, 